Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday morning worship service of the Heartland Church of the Nazarene. We're a community of faith learning to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. Welcome home. Today's sermon text is from Luke 4, 31 through 37. The passage will be on the screen for you, or if you like, please turn to Luke in your Bible. He went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching because he spoke with authority. In in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Let us alone! What What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down before them, he came out of him without having done him any harm. They were all amazed and kept saying to one another, What kind of utterance is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and out they come. And a report about him began to reach every place in the region. Thank you, Sam. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Well, we have been in the Gospel of Luke for the last couple of weeks, and Um, we've seen Jesus begin his public ministry at his baptism. We watched uh, the Holy Spirit descend upon him like in the form of a dove and God saying, uh, uh, this is my servant in whom I am well pleased, my son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, We we talked about Jesus being led into the wilderness uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. And uh, tempted not not to be super awful sinful, but to use his power uh, to serve himself rather than the world. And Jesus ends up coming through that okay and, and decides and proclaims that he's going to be the Messiah that, uh, well, that, that, uh, well, that sets the captives free. That he's going to use his power to serve the world, uh, to love the world. Well, uh, last week we saw Jesus ends up um, at his hometown and... I, the, the saying holds for him that you can't go home again. Because he, he goes home and he reads from this uh, scroll from Isaiah. And he's like, uh, you know, this is the things I've come to do. And it's from Isaiah 1. And it has a whole lot of uh, messiah, messianic overtones. And, and so his, his friends and family think, oh, this guy is good. He's coming to save us. But then he, he says some other things that make us think that, that well, he's come for everybody, not just his family and his friends or even just all of the Jews. And they get a little upset that the fact that, that, that someone like this might bring, like want to bring salvation for Israel's enemies, even. So they get mad and they chase him out of town and they try to throw him off a cliff. Um, I hope that that doesn't never happen to any of you when you go home. Sometimes when I go home, I want to jump off a cliff. <laughs> Just kidding, Mom. Well, this week we, uh, we go a little farther and... Um, undaunted by the adverse reaction of the crowd that day, of his hometown folks. Uh, He goes down from uh, Capernaum uh, to a city in Galilee and was teaching there on the Sabbath. Uh, He continues his ministry and and everybody is is in awe uh, of the things that he is saying and the things that he's doing. 
very clearly they, they, they know that this guy has authority. Now, uh, the Jewish folks are no strangers to having people, religious folks, talk to them or teach because that was a large part of you know, society and, and who they were. Uh, but this guy was different. He was different than the, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the, or the rabbis. He taught with a level of authority. I think that level of authority comes from uh, him really, really knowing, and not just a, in a headway, but in, in the fullness of everything, uh, who God is and, and what he's doing in our world. Uh, I'm sure that you've had similar experiences where you've, you've sat under a teacher and you're like, this is the most boring teacher in all of the world. Uh, and then you have, from the same subject, maybe the next year, you have a teacher who, who is passionate about that subject and passionate about teaching it, and you're like, oh, what is this? What is this teaching that comes with authority? I didn't know math could be so fantastic. Is nothing I ever said. Ah, yeah, I'm glad. From a fellow preacher. <laughs> from a fellow preacher. All the math I need, Excel can do. Uh, anyway, uh, he's... he's Authentic, and he's with authority, and his word is beginning to spread all around uh, the countryside about him. And uh, so, as he does, um, as he does, he goes to a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he teaches again. And uh, in the middle of that, Luke tells us that there is a demon-possessed man. Uh, now, I, I want you to conjure up in your mind. Uh, a mental image of what a demon-possessed man would look like. All right, uh, you, you got that. Anybody want to share their vision of what a demon-possessed man looks like? Me? <sighs> My children, they're on fire today. What's that? Angry, yeah, yeah. Gavin? Glowing red eyes, yes. Uh I wonder if our conception of what a demon-possessed man has been influenced more... Oh, yes, Hartley. Nothing? Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, I think that our understanding, our images that that come into our mind about what a demon-possessed man looks like uh, is largely shaped by Hollywood. And uh, the movies we see, and, and, you know, I certainly have... Uh, images in my mind from movies that maybe I shouldn't have watched, right? It'd scare the whatever out of me. And, uh, but I think, I think we should lay those things aside uh, and, and try to get a, a new image of, of what it is. In, in the Bible, uh, people who are possessed by spirits, it's not necessarily like an evil thing. It's more of a, a physical and a, a mental thing. Uh, that these spirits maybe aren't coming to to cause just ravenous evil, but to, to disrupt and to break. Uh, to hold in bondage God's beloved creatures. And so this man is sitting in the midst of the synagogue, and I kind of imagine him as just a normal guy. He's, maybe he's a little fidgety. Maybe he's, the leg's bouncing up and down because he's a little nervous because he's in foreign you know, enemy territory. And he's, but he's just a normal guy. And, and I don't know, I don't know if the rest of the people in, in the synagogue that day, I imagine this smaller-ish community, and you, you would know the people that you were 
uh, worshiping with. And I don't know if they knew he was demon-possessed. And if they knew why they let him in, because they've got a guest preacher, and it's embarrassing because this guy is pretty, pretty great. And I don't know. But he's there, and he stands up, and he shouts, Let us alone. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. A couple of things. Uh, this demon-possessed man, he offers, uh, well, he, he commands. He has to command, and then he asks a question, and then he makes a confession. So let's, let's kind of break this limb. He yells at Jesus, let us alone. Now, I, I, I've been thinking about why, why he might have thought this. Um, maybe, maybe he's, well, he, he's figured out who this Jesus guy is. Maybe he really, really likes the guy he's possessing. Or, or maybe he's just afraid that his little slice of the world that he is, uh, has made for himself is, well, is under attack. And he just really doesn't want to give that up. Uh, he, he knows, though, that Jesus can do something about it. And so he very foolishly tries to command Jesus to, to scram, to go on and get. Uh, so he, he, made, he issues this command, and, and obviously Jesus, well, he's not going to leave him alone. And then he, he, makes, he asks this question, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I, I think the, the demon understands and recognizes the power that, that is in Jesus, the authority of who, who Jesus is, and I think he thinks that maybe the end is near. Uh, that, that him and his buddies, maybe that are possessing other people, who knows? I don't know how all this works. Uh, that Jesus is just going to come and rain down destruction on them. I, I, I kind of got hung up on this little part because like, if we skip ahead and uh, well, Jesus doesn't destroy them, right? He just kind of casts them out. And it makes me wonder if Jesus understands his mission uh, to be so big and so grand that it includes the redemption of even the demonic. Uh, that, that God's hopes and dreams for even the most evilest thing is one of forgiveness and grace and redemption. Jesus doesn't destroy him. And the devil comes back and he says, or the demon comes back and says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. As far as confession go, confessions go, it, at least in the book of Luke so far, this is spot on, right? This demon knows exactly who Jesus is. And, uh, and he's making this confession. Verse 35, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down before them, he came out of him without having done any harm. Why, like, why would, why would Jesus tell this demon to be quiet? Uh, other than the fact that, like, well, I don't, he doesn't want him talking back, I guess. But he's just made this extremely accurate confession about who he is. Does Jesus not want the demon to proclaim who he is? Uh, Does he not want people to to hear the truth from maybe a a suspect source rather than uh, 
rather than uh, his own mouth or the mouth of his disciples? I don't know. I, I, and I may be, have, uh, well, maybe overthinking that particular, particular question. But the demon obeys, and he, he, he's quiet. We don't hear anything from him anymore. And, and uh, Jesus commands the demon to, to leave the guy, and so he does. And he throws the man down without doing him any harm. And the story is kind of over at that point. Uh, but, but again, I want to come back to this fact that, that Jesus he doesn't do anything to the demon. I, I assume that this demon has been cast out and he's just going to go and find someone else to trouble. Like, why, why, would, why would Jesus do that? I, uh, I think I've got really stuck, actually, on well, why Jesus doesn't like just end it right there. Like, squash the evil fully. And, and, and I began to think about um, what, what we talked about last week. And we, and we said part of what Jesus is doing is, is about forgiveness. And it's about uh, forgiveness as a movement uh, of God towards us to set things right, even though we are the ones who are in the wrong. Uh, that we are the sinners and, and we're, we're the evil ones. And yet Christ has come to release us from those things. And he, he moves towards us in the cross and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. He moves towards us to set things right. And we said last week, though, that, that what Christ has done for us is what we are called then to do. Uh, that we are to participate in Jesus' ministry to, to release the captives and set the prisoners free and to forgive. And, and that counterintuitively, we're called to move towards the ones who have hurt us, offering forgiveness and attempting to set things right. I I wonder if that's not what's happening here as well. That that Jesus has encountered this this evil in the world. And rather than doing what we often want to do with those who hurt us, Rather than, than wanting to just squash it and get rid of it and finally be done with it, and, and I confess, we, we do this with other people, right? Uh, God just kind of kicks them out. I got to believe. I got to believe that, that Jesus' hope in this particular moment is that someday, that someday, that that demon uh, will answer the call of God. I, I know that, that's strange. Uh, but I think if we, if we look at the rest of the gospel, that it is all about God moving towards the things that God has created in love, the things that have broken and, and decayed and gone wrong, to fix them, to call them back into a relationship with him. And so I... I don't know, I wonder, I wonder what that means for us then. Like how, how we react to the rest of the world. And I think I've got three questions um, that maybe we need to ponder. What are God's desires for those who perpetrate the worst kind of evil? I think we think of those who've just done heinous things. 
And as my sister sent me a text the other day, uh, she's a nurse and she's witnessing like people taking their parents and just leaving them alone until they're just beyond hope and then dropping them off at the hospital. And she's like, there's a special place in hell for people who, who don't take care of their parents in that kind of way. But I, I wonder if, maybe that's true, but I wonder if, I wonder if God's desire for those people who do the worst kinds of things is not that they end up in a, you know, like the worst part of judgment. But that God's grace is so big and so grand and, and so beyond anything that we can think that God's hope for those is forgiveness and redemption. What does God want to happen to those who actively seek to captivate people in cycles of poverty, addiction, and abuse? I, I think it's really easy. If uh, you guys seen on Facebook, like the, the sheriff's department posts mugshots of people who have been arrested, and then like all of the details about what they did. A little public shaming. And I, you see those people, and, and you think, well, they're getting what they deserve. And, and yes, there has to be consequences for our actions in the world. I think God looks on those people and says, you are my child. I'm not really pleased with you, but I love you, and I'm calling you back to me. And I wonder if that's not what we should do as well. As we are called to work toward the coming of God's kingdom in the world, how are we to treat the evil ones in our midst? It's hard, I think, because everything that we're trained to do, I think from our youngest days, is to see the people who are evil, for the people who hurt us, and to be like, ha, you're going to burn. And I, I think what, what we are as the body of Christ, what we are being called to, is something completely different and more radical. That where we are different from the world is maybe not about all of the things that we are against, or all of the rules that maybe we think we need to follow, but maybe where we are different from the world around us is in the way that we love our enemies. In a world that is as divided as ours is, where you can't seem to have a differing opinion from someone else without them questioning your humanity. I think if, if we want to be something in our community, then our thoughts always have to be, how do we love those who only want to hurt us? How do we do that at large? How do we do that with our family? I, 
I, I know this, that's difficult because it's not my first reaction either. I, I want to protect my family from evil. But I wonder what our, our little corner of the world would be like. I wonder how, how much the Holy Spirit could work through us for the sake of our church and for the sake of our schools and our jobs. If we looked at our enemies with love and we moved towards them to help set, make things right. We're going to receive the Lord's Supper here in a minute. When we do this, it is the ultimate reminder. It is the ultimate reminder of enemy love. It is in physical form, in physical form, a reminder that while we were still sinners, while we were evil and broken, that Christ died for us. And it's not magic, but I think if we let it, if we let it, if we approach it prayerfully, that just maybe it strengthens us a little bit to go and be an embodiment of enemy love in our world. We're going we're to pray, and I, I want us to think about three questions that are really similar to the ones that we've already asked, but maybe just a little bit more reflective for you. What are, my des- what, are, what are my desires for those who perpetrate evil? What do I want to happen to those who have caught my loved ones or myself in cycles of brokenness and abuse and addiction? What is my prayer for those who hurt me? It's okay if you answer, I want them to rot. Because God comes to us where we are and begins to work in us so that we might be transformed. Uh, so that we don't stay where we are, but that we slowly and gradually become more and more like Christ and embody his love in, in significant and real ways. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we confess that our desires for those who hurt us and who do evil things, I know we've talked about it in such general terms, but Lord, help us to, I don't know, bring to mind someone who has hurt us and help us to see them in a new way. Help us, contrary to our very instinct, to see them as 
your beloved child. Your child whom, whom you haven't come to destroy, who you've come to liberate and to forgive and to embrace. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, help us as we go about our days and we deal with friends and families who are just in a hot mess. Help us in, in all that we can do to, to participate with you in bringing about release from those things, but yet at the same time moving towards those who hurt our family and friends so that we might try to help make things right. Lord, we confess that our instinct is to pray to you that you might punish our enemies. Lord, help us to pray now that you might forgive our enemies as you have forgiven us. As we come and receive your meal, Lord, we ask that you would, that you would begin to work in us and, and move us from a place where we, where we don't like our enemies and to a place where we love them. Help us to see in these little bits of bread and juice your constant love and steadfast faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday morning worship service. For more information about the Heartland Church of the Nazarene, please visit heartlandnaz.org.